Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. Canadian comedy legend Ron James was born in beautiful Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. He attended Acadia University and studied history and political science with the intention of becoming a history teacher. During his time at Acadia, he became interested in the stage and after graduating moved to Toronto and joined the Second City Troupe, working with them throughout the 1980s. Shortly after, he moved to Los Angeles and appeared in various TV shows and starred in the movie Ernest Rides Again but mostly experienced rejection. He returned to Canada in 1993 and turned his experiences in LA into a stage show called Up and Down in Shaky Town, One Man's Journey Through the California Dream, which was also shown as a special on the Comedy Network. Afterwards, he discovered the work of Scottish comedian Billy Connolly, whose style helped him shape his own and inspired him to start doing stand-up comedy. The rest, as they say, is history. Ron has won Gemini's Canadian Comedy Awards, written and performed numerous primetime stand-up specials, and is unquestionably one of the all-time greats of Canadian comedy. But he stayed in Canada rather than desert us, so as a result does not always get the respect that he deserves in his homeland. His memoir, titled All Over the Map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road, was published by Doubleday Canada last year and was an immediate national bestseller, entering the top 10 on the week of release. He recently starred in Nathan McIntosh's sitcom Trapped, streaming now on Bell 5 TV One, and he's back on the road right now doing what he does best, playing to packed houses and standing ovations every single night from coast to coast to coast. Disarmingly frank and honest, Ron opens up about the state of the comedy industry in Canada, the secret to his longevity at the higher echelons of Canadian entertainment, family, love, life, and so much more. Here's Ron James. Ron James, it is an honour to finally meet you, my friend. Likewise. <laughs> um, been a, a fan for, for many, many years, um, and... In order to kind of prepare for this, I've gone into a deep dive of, of all of my uh, favorite Ron James DVDs and, and, and tapes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I guess I have to ask, like, when you started out in stand-up, did you realize that you would still be kind of going as full throttle now as you were when you started, if not more so? Uh, I didn't realize it, but I hoped I would. Right. I hoped that uh, because it was such a, a fundamental shift in my comedic perspective that when I'd started in Second City in improv, and uh, although I learned uh, hard and fast lessons about comedic structure and scene structure and writing in that environment, uh, it wasn't the best for me. I needed my own structure and my own point of view rather than have it filtered through another six cast members. 
Right. Yeah, which was usually, um, at least in our cast, had had some unnecessary political manifestations, and all of those casts do. But uh, what shifted for me was after my three years in Los Angeles, chasing the sitcom dream as an actor. Mm. I got so tired of waiting for other people to empower me and to validate my comedic perspective. And I did a show down there called My Talk Show, which was a half hour comedy created by the brilliant comedic mind of Deborah McGrath and Linda Cash. Anyway, there was a gutting of the show, uh, a pogrom by Imagine Television. There were three of us left out of the original eight. I stayed down there in LA after that show was canceled. But a lot of comedians came on the show. And I remember watching them thinking, well, that's not rocket science. <laughs> and I'd already been dabbling in stand-up prior to leaving um, a young troupe by the name of Kids in the Hall <laughs> or doing curtains up, working out new material at 110 Lombard Street. And I was hosting and doing my stuff. And that was way back in 90. Then we went down. But when I came back, and wrote a one-man show about it called Up and Down in Shaky Town, One Man's Journey Through the California Dream. It uh, it was kind of it was a declaration and an allowance to myself that I had a right to sing a solo song. Right. That it didn't have to be filtered and validated by six other people or uh, the um the tastes of gatekeepers in Hollywood. Right. And so I just came here and started singing my song and it started slow, put it up at a factory theater in the basement, got three good reviews, took the best eight minutes from that and started amateur night again in the summer of 94. Wow. Uh, I did one of those earnest movies out West, which gave me a bit of confidence and, and helped me make a dent in the, 48 grand of US dollars I was in debt to hmm. when I came home. And uh, oddly enough, I, I remember telling my stories about meeting Americans for the first time to the director whose name was Buster Cherry. I'm not shit. Uh, Some things you can't. <laughs> I know, I know. It's just a gimme. And it didn't hit me until I came home. My wife said, that's his name? I said, what do you mean it's his name? Buster Cherry. You call yourself a comedian? His name is Buster Cherry. That's beautiful. <laughs> and uh, bizarre and peculiar, but lovely uh, Jim Varney, yeah. who could smoke a deck of Marlboros on the way to the set in the morning. Uh, well, he was cracking a volume of Rush Limbaugh to tell me what really was wrong with America. But anyway, <laughs> that was way back in 93. And I would tell my stories to these Nashville Republicans about meeting Americans for the first time. And they and they all laughed. Right. And so I thought, I'm going to put that in a show. Mm -hmm. And I'd already been doing it in 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 um, not as a stand up, but as a reader of prose in the coffee house scene in Los Angeles, right. uh, just to stay sane. I'd throw my name in the hat with 35 other hopefuls looking for a corner of the American dream to call <laughs> their own. And as I've said before, I, I think I shared the stage with the illegitimate spawn of the Charles Manson clan who 
wandered down from their Chatsworth Warrens with their poetry and prose looking for the love that Charlie never gave. <laughs> and, you know, you know, you're in the deep end, man, when you're following a dude who was uh, claiming to have been beamed aboard the mothership by aliens and had the scars on his shoulders to prove it. <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. right. Meanwhile, I'm talking about dipping smelts in the Stewiak River with dad. <laughs> <laughs> or my uncle's going on the Murmansk run from Halifax to uh, Murmansk, Russia in World War II in the convoy Navy. Anyway, coming back home, I know this is a roundabout way of answering your question, which is why I was never, I, I, I never really enjoyed Just for Laughs because you had to do eight to 10 minutes. Right. And that's about as much time as it takes me to set up a preposition. Right. So uh, anyway, uh, I came back, took the best eight minutes out of that one hour show went to this great little club called the Laugh Resort, which is no longer there. A condo exists in its place and started amateur night. And I did that for six months. And then I, I shared a bill with uh, a young comedian by the name of Barry Julian, who went on to write for this hour and moved to New York and became the recipient of a Peabody Award as a producer of the uh, Colbert Show. Oh, wow. Hardworking dude. Mm. And... Uh, wasn't as funny as me that night, though. <laughs> so he's got a Peabody Award, but I drink for free north of the tree line. So yeah, yeah. each has its merits. That's it. You're living the Canadian dream. <laughs> the Canadian. Exactly, bro. And so uh, I started there, and it was uh, – I used to sweat a bucket with every set. Mm. I went too fast. I was frenetic. I never let the – uh, material breathe, but I, I, I found where I belonged, mm. and that was January of twenty five of uh, ninety five. I got my first check. Wow! Stayed in the clubs. Don't know how I fed the girls, but I managed. <laughs> yeah. I remember that first semi-detached we had. I used to go around the floor. I pulled the carpets up, thinking I could sand the floors when we bought it. Right? Yeah. And there was not enough wood to sand. Wow. Yeah. So these nails used to pop up in the wintertime. Jeez. Remember, I used to say to the girls, don't forget to put your moccasins on because you don't want a nail to go through your foot. <laughs> so before they came down for breakfast in the morning, I used to go around the floor and nail freaking oh hammer God. the nails down. That's... But a little bit at a time, you know, and what well, the beautiful thing about stand up, the most wonderful thing about our calling, James. Mm -hmm is it allows you to line up the planets and make sense of the chaos we're all walking through in the language of laughs. Beautiful. And look, if you want a sermon, you can go somewhere else. Yeah, it's good to get stuff off your chest. But I never felt that I was more important than the audience. I felt we were both, I felt my goal was to get us on the same page. That's not to say you have to pander. You can push the envelope to wherever you want. Yeah. Just don't lose the room. Right. Because right. they paid to laugh, man. Yeah. Well, that's they what... paid to laugh. Yeah. The audience and is thinking good too. I mean, Second City, you know, I mean, it could get pretty lofty. Those, you know, two person relating scenes when you had something to say. Mm. Well, you know, I had something to say in 1982 about the nuclear arms race at the time, and boy, that had a big impact on Russia, didn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but still, true. it allows you to to work at the top of your game. And as 
as Johnny Carson said to Steve Martin, one of the phrases in his book that stayed with me, which, by the way, I think is the best book ever written on stand-up comedy. Uh, Johnny Carson leans into him about his 10th time on the show and says, you'll use everything you ever knew. And you pull from everywhere. My buddies used to say, there's stuff in your head no one ever uses. You know, like I could do 10 minutes on the drop of a hat at the Battle of Stalingrad. But, you know, they were busy going into business. But they were laughing. And, you know, hot knives certainly helped in those days, too. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, from what you just said, I mean, the fact that you knew that at the beginning, that, that not allowing the gatekeepers to dictate your your career and your creativity, essentially, that is a, a path that you've continued to this day, where, you know, the, the only gatekeepers really are the audience and, and indeed ourselves, where if we're right. making the audience laugh, then they'll keep coming. You don't need any uh, industry approval. And even, in, again, in Canada, I mean, people, you know, we, we, we suffer here, A, it comes down from the government not respecting stand-up, but then also the media as a whole doesn't celebrate its comedians in the same way they do in America. They don't and give a shit. Right, right. They don't give a shit. Yeah. And to call them out on it is to is is to sound bitter. Right. The New York Times on Saturday, there was a full page or three quarters of a page in a comedian. Yeah. Uh, in the New York Times. Yeah. I, I, right? I, I mean, it's gratuitous lip service. And the only way we can feed our own substantially is through corporate gigs. Yeah. And the first thing they'll tell you in a corporate gig is no politics, no religion and no sex. <laughs> what the fuck do you hire a comedian for? That's <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, stuffy bankers, right? a, a perfect example. I mean, every British broadsheet newspaper will write in-depth Vanity Fair length interviews with comedians. And yet my biggest frustration was at the end of each year, picking up whether it be National Post or Globe and Mail, and there would be Nothing. a 20-page art special, and there would be, you know, best ballet, best classical, best one-legged fiddle player. You don't count. No mention of comedy. And you know why? It's because it's what Farley Mowat said to me. I used mm. to be a buddy with that cantankerous old fella. <laughs> and uh, he said, Ronnie, Canadians don't understand. Now, Canadians are scared of satire. <laughs> industry scared of satire because yeah, we have a dysfunctional deference to authority if you're going to be funny you got to sneak in the back door and be sitting down at their kitchen table before the sons of bitches even though you're in the house <laughs> but it's it's something i didn't want to go on about yeah. in the book because they're so quick to vilify us as right. being bitter right and the cbc as crucial as they were for me with my specials yeah okay there was a period where I had to deprogram myself right. after leaving the Kremlin or after being told to leave, right. getting 1.4 million viewers Mad. out of the la the three out of the last four shows on New Year's Eve. Amazing. Absolutely. And, incredible. Uh, but I was, I was locking horns with them. Mm. You know, I locked horns severely. And you know how tough it is to come up with a joke that's got strong legs, that kills from coast to coast. Right. Rural right. communities. Yeah. Uh, big cities. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump. The Donald Trump joke, too. Right. I said, uh, Donald Trump had the audacity to say that women who get abortion should be punished. Beg to differ. The only woman who should have been punished was Donald's mother for not having one. <laughs> I lost my mind. That's, that's, I almost showed up there taking hostages. I would have been on that C, uh, CBC Evening News yeah. shirtless with a couple of hostages. <laughs> Look at the joke they got. 
<laughs> and I knew that was the beginning of the end for me. Right. And there's so many apparatchiks uh, who drank the corporate Kool-Aid in order to survive. And I think that's what compromises comedy here, besides a lack of deference for a rebel voice. Right. For somebody who's really going to uh, tip the apple cart, i.e. George Carlin. We'll get back to that HBO special. Mm -hmm. But as far as journalism is concerned, Canada land is excellent. Mm -hmm. And yeah. some people have hit their tipping point. And mm -hmm. there's some there's some great work coming out of Canada land and Jesse Brown. Right. And uh, so that's a that's a good sign. Yeah. But uh, as far as traveling the country is concerned, mm -hmm. I've had to grow over these last 23 years. And, you know, I've got a big tour in the West in the fall. And it had always been, I mean, when oil was 421 bucks a barrel, every time a car blew up in Baghdad, there were two new trucks in every Albertans driveway. <laughs> I was living large. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it built me a house in Toronto. Yeah. And, but I took my chances too. Yeah. You know, on stage in, in Edmonton at the Windspear with 2000 people. I said, uh, oh boy, it's great to be black back playing in Petrocanistan again. You know, I better watch what I say or I'll be dipped in a bucket of bitumen like those 5,000 ducks that took a wrong turn last week. You know, but you got to take your chances. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just one I remember. Uh, however, Canadians as a rule in urban centers will give all the room in the world to a visiting comedian, right. a, an iconoclast, mm -hmm. a firebrand, who has justifiably established themselves as a voice of subversion, mm -hmm. whether left or right, yeah. in America or Britain. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think it's got to do with Canada's idolization and deification of anyone but us. But right. there's never been a better time for Canadian comedic voices to hold power to account yeah. and to address the social issues that are fast fermenting in this toxic stew of populism. Look at that liver lip little prick Pierre Poliev <laughs> playing that populist card with all these politicized plow jockeys and their black hats and convoys in Ottawa with some bogus manifesto as to how they're going to fix the government with, while they hijack hashtag freedom. Yeah, if you love freedom so much, did you join any um, any guerrillas in, uh, in the Ukraine to fight the Russian invasion? Right. Fuck off. Go back and fucking have your Timmies and your Sons of Odin circle jerk outside of Red Deer. But until you have some solid... Uh, some some solid reason. Hmm. I mean, look, I mean, right. anarchy isn't the answer. Right. And yeah, you know, the Silver Spoon Dauphin pisses me off a lot too. <laughs> I mean, his optics are a lot to be desired. Yeah. But yeah. when you think of the options, I mean, the Conservative Party, I mean, given that rabid biblical base that's split into so many categories, Jesus, we'll be watching them eat their own dick for the next 15 years. <laughs> It's true. I mean, but, but this is what has kept you at the top of your game, going out on the road, talking like this openly, but but highlighting things, but making it funny and the freshness. And I mean, you know, thank you. No, no, it, it, it's it's a beautiful thing. And I think there is, even though it sucks, the situation in this country and the way that comedians are treated, it has created this incredible 
essentially grassroots movement where absolutely you answer to nobody. Uh, uh, you go out there, you wow the audience. You don't need to wait for someone to give you permission to 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 do this. Nothing has to be signed off. And you, but I had to hit my tipping point, James. Right I, right. I played the game for a long, long, long time. Yeah. I played it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I answered to global television. I answered to Salter Street on my first series, Black Fly. Right. And I let those Salter Street guys off the hook pretty easily. They were <laughs> gutless. Right. They were gutless. Yeah. You have to appreciate. I don't think Michael Donovan knew the first fucking thing about comedy. Right. Yeah. You know, he might have been lucky enough to, you know, thread the needle and create this hour's 22 minutes, but Codco created this hour's 22 minutes. Right. He happened to be the guy with the money. Yeah. Right? You have to respect the subversive nature of comedy. And as far as global television was concerned, uh, you know, I, I almost lost my mind. I mean, they wouldn't promote us. They they bought the show. They wouldn't promote us. Crazy. I was working 14, 16 hour days, even on the weekends. Yeah. You know, I had a great cast. I wanted to make sure that they felt comfortable and 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 wanted and appreciated yeah. for the hard work we were putting in. Everybody in that fort on these like hundred degree days, mm-hmm. uh, people fainting. It's it was relentless. And it had great potential to satirize current social and political trends in the context of the 18th century Canadian fur trade. I plucked archetypes from the history books. As I said in my own book, I wanted to, uh, I was influenced by uh, the way Monty Python and and Black Adder uh, utilized historic context in order to uh, satirize current events. Yeah. And... uh, I and I needed a deeper writing team than I had. I needed five. I didn't need two more. Right. Uh, anyway, it was benign neglect. Right. Unequivocal. Yeah. And the seven years after that, when I hit the road, they were instrumental, of course, mm-hmm. in building up my specials. Yeah. But then when I got my series, I was able to rectify in my own writing room what I didn't like about the writing room in this hour, which had been very combative and. And not so combative, but just not, um, I didn't like the way it was structured. Right. You went in on Monday, you looked at the newspaper accounts and you wrote for 48 hours mm-hmm. and your read through was on Wednesday. I love the writing room that we had on, on, on the Ron James show. Uh, and I don't usually talk about myself in the third person, no, but, but, that, but uh, that is Gary, the name of the show. So you can see, yeah. uh, okay, <laughs> but Gary Campbell was the head writer. You know, he come from 30 years of, uh, with a great comedy pedigree writing for, Roseanne, Mad TV as a producer and Kids in the Hall. Mm-hmm. And uh, Scott Montgomery, Paul Pogue, Pete Zedlacher, a great wow. stand-up comedian. I love him. And uh, Mark DeAngelis for a while. Uh, and um, then uh, Jen Whalen came on, who created Baroness Von Sketz, and Jen Robertson, who was in Schitt's Creek. Wow. I had a lot of really funny people in that room. Yeah. Uh, but CBC, once again, had an idea of where I was supposed to fit. Right. And what I was supposed to be. And I wanted to tip the apple cart, man. Mm. And that's my job. Yeah. But yet when you're in the confines of the corporation who didn't really give a rat's ass about us, we got bounced around the dial seven times. Madness. But the money was good. Yeah. I love the people I was working with. My producer, Lynn Harvey, uh, who did all my specials, uh, except my first one and, uh, produced the television series. Uh, just an exemplary pedigree. Yeah. And with the money that we had, we put an awful lot of people to work. All my old second city pals were able to work in the show. 
Pat McKenna, Pete Callahan, Deb McGrath, Colin Mockery. Uh, so we had the best of the best of sketch performers. But if the network doesn't get you, uh, you know, you, it's an uphill battle all the time. Right. So this freedom you talk about, <laughs> this freedom of the road, it's just so Magical. After in the confines of the corporate world of network television, yeah, there is nothing that holds a candle to a man or woman uh, or they mm-hmm. in front of that microphone, yeah, with a glass of water on a stool, singing their song to an audience who's paid the laugh. It's you and them. It's as holy a connection in entertainment, for my money, as you can find. Yeah, because. Your job is to get laughs and the audience creates the art with you by validating it. And you've got to work toward it. Yep. I got goosebumps, by the way, when you were saying that. And and I mean, it, it made me think. I went to see the, the the new Top Gun movie last night, and I think about all the money and and you know expense and and pollution, all the things that were done to create a movie like that. And that's not to disparage it, but all of the the, the hundreds of millions of dollars it took to entertain people yeah. for two hours. And meanwhile, yeah. we stand on a stage, and as you say, the, the 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 basics of the job haven't changed since the days of the court jester. There's no pyrotechnics. There's no. It's 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 a person Nothing. person talking and the audience is transfixed for two hours and then at the end they get up on their feet and give a standing ovation which they don't do in the cinema after watching Tom Cruise fly a plane for two hours. I mean, good call, bro. That, that, <laughs> good call. It's, it's so true. It's so true. You don't need the bells and whistles. Yeah. It's you know it's it's just simple and satisfying and so hard. Yes. Well, there's that. So how it's did it feel? So hard. It's so difficult to make a living. Yeah. Once again, I was lucky. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it fell in my lap because I worked for it. Yeah. I, in the days when we were working the lap resort, I had, I had my reviews for Shaky Town. Right. And I had 500 cassettes mm-hmm. of the radio performance of it I did for DNTO mm-hmm. that I would send out with my packages. Right. And I remember all my packages, my free reviews and my letter were on the bed and I'd spend 200 or 300 bucks with me, which I didn't have mm-hmm. um, with mailings and follow up phone calls. Yeah. And the first year I did that, I got two gigs. One was in Petrolia that was canceled because nobody bought a ticket. <laughs> and that was in 96. <laughs> 97, 96 or 97. And the other one was in Picton, which is now a hot spot outside of Toronto, of course, Prince Edward County. Right. And we were excited because I got paid 500 bucks and we got a cottage. Right. Me and June and the girls could get out of the city for a weekend Lovely. and I could get paid. And somebody who ran the 4-H club did the sound. <laughs> a guy who was the head of the Masons did the lights. <laughs> And somebody at the front did something and it was, it was authentic. It was a real, you could feel just like I've said in the book about going around Lake Superior. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, man, standing on that stage in Manitowoc the same night as the Super Bowl Mm -hmm. in a high school auditorium that held 150 people and it was full. And I was so in the pocket, I couldn't remember what the last 20 minutes of the show were. <laughs> and then the next day, I followed wolf tracks in a light dusting of snow up to Weimet Canyon mm-hmm. under a cobalt blue sky, 
smack dab in the heart of group of seven country. I might as well have been in a Lauren Harris canvas. Oh, wow. I thought this is real. Yeah. Cause I'd been through all, don't get me wrong. I still wanted the grail of TV. I still want it just for laughs. Yeah. But I knew that there was something. I knew that I was on the right road. Amazing. Even yeah. though people would, some comedians, you know, you know, oh, Ron's playing Gravenhurst. <laughs> yeah. I'm paying Gravenhurst. Yeah. Oh, going around Superior? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I got a gig in Dryden. Yeah. 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 Because uh, I, 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 you know, my father gave me a work ethic. There was yeah. no such thing as doing anything half-assed. I used yeah. to get pissed off at a buddy of his who'd do half-assed work in the house. Mm-hmm. So you got to do it right. Well, that's it. And that's always the key. I mean, every, wherever you are and whoever you're performing for, they have made the effort to come out get a babysitter, bought a ticket, everyone deserves the, the, the very best of you. I mean, I mean, I mean, how does it feel to be back on stage now, especially after the last two years? What, what did it feel like getting back on stage in front of 2,000 people a night? I mean, it must have just been, and I've been a seeing it. A recalibration of the life force. Right. <laughs> period. Yeah. It was so joyous. Yeah. And ironically, the first show I did, uh, I was born on the Coal Town Road in Glace Bay in 1958 down in Cape Breton. I lived there till I was nine, but I was playing in Sydney. Nice. At the Highland, and we were sold out. Beautiful. It's a lovely And thing. we got a second show, too. Right. And, uh, you know, I remember doing 10 minutes on the bagpipes <laughs> and then another 10 minutes on how Huey and Allen, um, a comedy team, from, <laughs> a comedy team from the Highlands in the early sixties, dad used to see at the Legion, uh, had dialogue on par with Samuel Beckett's waiting for Godot. Oh, nice. Where are you going? Who? You? What's it to you? I'm up on the road. I see you're on the road. What are you waiting for? None of your business. He's coming. Who's coming? Oh, and they were just I just did it for whatever old folks might have been in the audience. Yeah, they would have well, that's another thing too, you know. I'll get flack. Hey Ron, your audience is older. Well, I'm 64. They've been following me for 25 years. We all grew old together. But when young people come up to me and young people of, of ethnic origin, yeah. Jesus, I mean, you know, that that refutes yeah. this uh this perception, misperception mm. that my audience is uh just aging white boomers. Right. Right. Now, I've been to your shows where, you know, again, I've met people who will say to me that they've come to see you, you know, every two years for 20 years. But equally, yeah, people half my age uh, seeing you for the first time because they've, you know, seen clip- clips online or they've heard things. And, um, oh, shit. and it's, yeah, it's an amazing. Yeah, at the Imperial Theatre in St. John here a few years ago, the, I would say that the, the audience was evenly split between people, you know, uh, who've been coming for 20 years and younger people who were oh good yeah no it's yeah, good, i saw good. it with my own eyes and and again i come <laughs> in and you know, it's, it's it's true <laughs> that's a nice room to play hey james oh lovely yeah it's beautiful oh boy and, man it makes me wish i could sing because the acoustics are so good you could <laughs> rattle a dime in the top balcony yeah. oh yeah, yeah it's yeah. so true i mean the amazing thing is, is because you've traveled canada so just every single corner pocket every town you must have material on every single place so as a result 
every single town and city you go to from from coast to coast to coast you've got a, an a connection to that place and to the people there well that's the rejuvenating and uh inspiring aspect of the road for right. me is uh i never thought that pulling into portage la prairie was a waste of time for instance right right or 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 playing um you know smaller places on the island like Duncan. Right. Right. I can do 10 minutes on whether Sasquatch are a real or not in Duncan and the audience because they believe in yeah. Bigfoot. That's it. Or uh right playing Inuvik. Yeah. Oh man, I had the Gwich'in people come up to me after a gig in Inuvik. <laughs> uh no no Inuit people. I used to have but the Gwich'in people gave me a hat and a jacket because they said they come up to me and they said Click Clem and Spork, because that's what mom used to feed us, canned meat, right? right. <laughs> Clem and Spork. After eating that crap, a bowl of bovine growth hormones is a luxury. <laughs> and they knew it. They knew the best. So, you know, it's right. like to get back to Billy Conley's, yeah. uh, the wizard, the alchemist. Yeah. To get back to Billy's, uh, an interview with him years ago. Mm-hmm. What's the intent of the joke? What's right. the intent? And you don't punch down agreed you topple the pharaoh on his golden throne Mm -hmm. you don't make fun of the man in the gutter and if you're using a character of somebody in the gutter they're making fun of you right you reverse the status yeah that's our job is to speak truth to power not to topple the weak right and if you're making fun of of anything it's best to be self-deprecating about yourself. Right. I think that's what's won me support, I suppose, by balancing my political point of views with my own inadequacies. Well, you know, I was little for a long time as a kid, you know, and like 42 pounds and 37 of that was my friggin' head. <laughs> right. right? Mean, you know? A huge part of it also is that you, you, when you talk about politics, it's quite a unique skill that, that I bet more comedians wish they had, which is that even if someone doesn't agree with the politics that you're saying, they are fi- still finding it funny. And that's a very rare skill because generally, especially in America, people just watch the comedians who fit their political worldview whereas i feel like in canada someone might be left might be right but they're happy to if a comedian is funny they're happy to laugh at what they're saying well yes and that being said mm. it's changing yeah yes buddy it's po- changing post and my COVID. eldest you know uh, who's very you know both my daughters i teased them i said uh, you know um uh, the I was a fan of capitalism basically because I wanted to get paid as a comedian. Right, right. You know, it's pretty hard to put pay a mortgage on beer tickets from the Rivoli. <laughs> that's right. Admit, so, I wanted to get paid. Yeah, that's so, it. So thankfully and miraculously, I put them through university on a comedian salary and, and things, but I raised a couple of Bolsheviks. <laughs> so I teased them. I said, uh, when the shit goes south, you'll hide me in the attic, right? <laughs> Uh, do we have the boomers up against the wall? Not all of them. My dad's in the back, in the garage. Drag him out. Okay, comrade, thanks. But uh, they say, uh, and it's true. I mean, uh, Kaylee, who, um, by the way, has her master's in film and television. Wow, and amazing. works in the documentary film game. She's on the on the board of the um, Arab Film Festival in, in Toronto. And her sister, Gracie Younger, is a... Um, 
uh, ran the, the Brickworks, is Locavore Food Market uh, wow. in, in, in Toronto. And they're both very politicized and informed and patient with their old man's ADHD and, <laughs> and, and generally scattered brain. It's funny, stand-up, isn't it, hey? Eh? Uh, the time that you're most in the pocket and, well, I suppose at peace mm. is in front of that microphone. Yeah, that's it. Channeling your muse. Yeah. Making sense of it all. Right. In the language of laughs. It's And it's a wonderful place to find yourself, which is why you never want to leave it, right? Because you remember the pre-show anxieties earlier on. At least I do. I remember yeah. Amateur Nights. I wrote about it in the book. And, yeah. you know, pacing backstage at Just for Laughs, like, nine pumas in a cage with these other comedians from around the world trying to suck each other out. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Right. I mean, uh, but it was a crucible that was necessary to go through and survive and hone the blade that much better. Yeah. And the more you're on stage, you're like a Damascus blade, you know, that's folded 35, 50 times. And that's what Carlin always said was stage time, stage time, stage time. Yeah. It's imperative that we address these polarities and fissures that are occurring mm. in the country we love. And I think what's going to play to our favor with this issue of polarization and rise of populism mm. is our small population. Right. You know, only 37 million. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous about playing the West in the fall because mm -hmm. I'm not going to compromise my point of view about the convoy. Right. Uh, when I play Medicine Hat or Lethbridge and not everybody out there uh, is on board with this. I mean, right. there's only 10 percent of the population. And even though there's a traditional and visceral distrust of Ottawa yeah. and Ottawa has to take some of that flack as well. Yeah, for sure. Over the years mm -hmm. for isolating the West. Mm -hmm. And only when you travel it do you understand it right. or at least try to wrap your head around it. But it's, it's getting easier to lose the room on what I feel are progressive points of view. Interesting. So that's really a thing, uh, something that's happened in the last two years, essentially. Yeah. 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 It, COVID has, has created that kind of that division and that's interesting so i mean w will that change the way obviously it's not going to change the way that you you perform but is it going to change the way that you uh write a joke about the convoy or or frame it in a way that um no no not that no no no, no. i'm 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 absolutely you're all in anti oh come on man my <laughs> uncle was in a convoy in world war ii right in the corvette navy yeah. yeah floating in a time bomb uh you know protecting the merchant marines in the battle in the atlantic never knowing when a U-boat's torpedo was going to end his 21-year-old life in a watery grave, right. and there was nary a bouncy castle in sight. Yeah, right? well said. And Candace Bergen should be ashamed, uh, you know, the way she showed up to support the convoy. At least she wasn't wearing her MAGA hat. <laughs> Meanwhile, Pierre Poliev, as I said, that grandstanding opportunistic populist, he's got his day coming. And I'm happy to read in the Globe and Mail, which is always vilified as a as a conservative newspaper, mm -hmm. that Andrew Coyne is speaking out against populism. Right. And there's been a lot of op-eds against Polyev. Yeah. And uh, I don't bother with the Post. Every now and then I'd read it, as I said, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll read a Conrad Black op-ed just for the sesquipedalian rush of it all. <laughs> and uh, that guy invents words, man. Yeah, uh, but uh, no, no, I'm not. And I think it's the job of comedians 
to address those issues and move history to the right direction. Because that would just be pandering to the lowest common denominator. And I think that's one of the lessons I learned in my 10 years with Second City is to, um, there was one director there, Del Close, who I never had, but his wisdom filtered down, was uh, always play to the top of your intelligence. Right. And I never assumed that the audience was stupid. Um, I mean, I've got to say, as you know, you know how much I love the book and, and Thanks, I love the buddy. fact that, no, I mean, it, it really did. It, the fact that it's, you know, funny, honest, in, insightful, it also works as the as the definitive kind of guide to surviving uh, the Canadian entertainment industry and obviously specifically with stand-up. But there must be, you've got so many road stories. I mean, how did you decide what to include, what to leave out? Will you do a second one? And what was the writing process like? Well, uh, first of all, um, before the days of social media, I kept moleskins mm-hmm. and I didn't write bits. I wrote about where I was and what people had said to me. And I had a routine. I got up every morning in the hotel. I had a banana, a muffin and a cup of coffee and went for a run. Nice. I came back, had a shower, cracked the paper sat down at breakfast and wrote. Right. Years ago, once again, Steve Martin, I remember reading in those Playboy interviews mm-hmm. uh, that he said, when you choose comedy, the universe has a way of validating the choice. Yeah. And the universe dropped these rubies in my hand of people talking to me. And um, my mother and father were affable, hospitable people. People seem to open up to them and things uh, and just tell them their stories. And dad always told stories. He remembered things like when he used to go hunting in Cape Breton, there was a farmer he knew who used to feed his pigs coal. (laughs) Right. Or he'd tell stories about being little in Newfoundland or growing up on Hunter Street in Halifax. And he had these Great sayings, too, like, Lord Jesus, Ronnie, that wall hasn't been painted since the year of the white mice. (laughs) So we'd get high, you know, on canoe trips and try to figure out what year the white mice actually occurred. Right? Right? Or else he'd say, uh, uh, (laughs) I'd be helping him work or something. And then I'd space out. He said, Jesus, are you going to paint that wall or stand there posing for holy pictures? (laughs) So he's funny. Yeah. Funny trickles down. My mom would come home from being downtown and this lady, as I said in the book, would she'd be on the number one bus coming back home and a lady would tell her the story about the cyst they found on her niece's Pekingese dog in Boston who'd ran away with a jazz musician their parents hated. Right. Uh, so people opened up to me yeah. and I felt that what I was hearing were voices of the land right. and voices of the big wide open. And when I started out as an actor, I used to read Studs Terkel. He was on NPR in Chicago, and he had books called Working, American Dreams Lost and Found, and The Last Good War. And he'd go around with a tape recorder and just talk to people. Uh-huh. And they told him their stories. And there were, there were a couple of books that were written like that in Canada, too. And I think the guy's name, last name was Broadfoot, not David Broadfoot, the comedian, uh, who was a wonderful man, by the way. Yes. Nice guy. Yeah, Gave me a tip uh, uh, as to how to book myself in in uh, in theaters. 
So I kept journals. And then when I sat down to write the book, which took a long time, just like stand-up, I had to give myself permission to do it. Right. Interesting. And uh, I was very anxious about tackling it because I wanted to get it right. And I threw the first 162 pages out. Really? Yeah. Why? What What, what do you think? I mean, did you come just, back to them? It, was, or? it just wasn't... It just wasn't there. Mm. It just wasn't there. Then I rewrote the intro three times. I had a great editor by the name of Tim Rostrum, and a British chap who oh. worked on Fleet Street in the old days. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. A really good fellow. Knew his stuff inside out. Very, very funny. Yeah. And uh, so they were very patient with me. And then... Uh, I sat down with Scott Sellers and he said, look, we got to set a hard deadline for this. And I was dabbling in it. Yeah. I wasn't. It's like Stephen King says in his book on writing. Yeah. Great book. Great book. Don't come to it lightly. Right. And the days I came to it lightly were the days I didn't write well. Right. Yeah. But the days I had my routine, like I did on the road where I'd wake up, I can't run anymore. So I've got a concept two rower or a bike and I'd get up. And I don't sleep late. I don't stay up late. Mm -hmm. So I'd get up around seven. I'd have my first breakfast. I'd row, shower, uh, and then have another breakfast and sit down in front of the computer and get it done. Nice. Then I read it and I kept my comedian's ear tuned as well. But one of the uh, joys of the book when I did find my rhythm was um, allowing myself to luxuriate in the language. Wow. Yeah. Which the stage doesn't allow you to. And you don't want to come off. You know, I went to visit my father's third cousin in Newfoundland several years ago when I was over there. Majumder used to have this great event called The Gathering. Oh, yes. I've heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It was fun, man. It was fun. And my father's born about two hours away on the other side of the province in a place called Burgio, but he was born on Vatcher's Island, this little pimple of granite in the North Atlantic. Wow. Anyway, I went there speaking of words and I went there and met the cousin and uh, I didn't know them very well. And there was a fella walking down the street. No, he, we were out conjuring and he, this guy comes by in another boat and I'm in the boat with the cousin. And he says, do you know who this fella is? The guy in the other boat looks at me and goes, yes, boy, I knows who that is. He goes, yeah, that's the fella says all the big words on TV. <laughs> Not comedian. Yeah. The fellow what says the big words. Yeah. And then his wife. So they says, so uh, so you've got a wide audience, does you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they think you're funny then. Yeah. Apparently. Some do. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Some do. Uh, by the way, that's that's what Nathan McIntosh so brilliantly captured in his show, Trapped. Yeah, I have to give the kid a plug. He's the future. He's so funny. You yeah. got to get him on, man. Yeah, and I love and the show. He works so hard, James. Yeah. Honest to Jesus. I mean, the guy's got a new clip every friggin' day. Yeah, and he played, you know, the Comedy Cellar, the best club in America, in New York City where they put you on a quarter to one in the morning and you got to kill or you're gone. Yeah. You got to kill or you're gone. Nathan is so focused, so driven, as you say, he's constantly turning over new material. And and then, and now to have this show trapped, which as you say is absolutely hilarious and, and you're both amazing in it. And it's just so wonderful to have something like that featuring performers like yourself that is filmed here in the Maritimes. That is just. 
on a on a paltry budget, right? A paltry budget. Yeah. I mean, this <laughs> look all well and good. We had a riot, but you know, yeah. you go to the Winnebago to take a dump. You want <laughs> there to be water in the toilet. There's no water in the Winnie's toilet. Hey, Everybody it- kept coming in. Jesus, somebody took a crap. Well, where else am I going to take a dump? On the railway tracks behind the Methadone Mall we're shooting in? Hey, you keep keeping it real. <laughs> I have to tell you that I wouldn't have had that much fun had Nathan not put it on the page. Right. It's got to be on the page. Hmm. And the kid... I say the kid. I mean, I'm 64. Everybody under 40 is a kid to me now. <laughs> and uh, Jesus. But... He wasn't sure about the final scene. It wasn't wrapping it up enough for him. And he woke up at 4.30 in the morning and wrote it and brought it in when we started at 7. He goes, I wrote this last night. Can we get it? I said, Jesus, buddy, I'm going to do my best to hit this out of the park if you got up at 4.30 to write it. And uh, Jonathan Torrance, excellent director. Yeah. Every, I mean, the, you know, he's been in television forever he knows his stuff he's a legend all right stuff, gave me great notes and the rest of the cast were uh trina corkum was wonderful <laughs> wonderful as the mother but as i say you know it's the fish out of water back home and everybody <laughs> and everybody's insulting them don't, yeah. don't you love that bit we said yeah we watched you on tv and you kind of sounded like a muppet and a leg hole cramp yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so he got it but uh so to get back to your book uh, thing again, uh, roundabout way. I kept my comedian's ear tuned when I was writing it, but I was also allowed myself to uh, enjoy the narrative. And that's one of the things my editor had emphasized. He said, yes, make it funny, but don't be afraid to explore uh, the emotional uh, content of the stories. Right. And I'd had that story sitting around about my uncle finding his sobriety and being on the streets in Toronto for three years and um, how it all wrapped up in the end. And the last story I put in was the story about giving Vern, the yeah. indigenous homeless man, a lift to Leduc from that. Airdrie. I was also able to research um, the 60 scoop. Uh, I met Douglas Knockwood uh, when we both got honorary doctorates at Acadia. I watched my little Newfoundland father get smudged in by a Mi'kmaq elder uh, on the hill at Acadia, where many an evening I staggered way too hammered down to a dance after playing caps. Uh, But also, it was a saving grace for my mental health to be focused on this book during the dark days of COVID. Yeah. Because it was a light at the end of the tunnel. And there was also a blessing that came my way when they decided to delay its publication by a year. Mm. And my eldest, Kaylee, took a pass on Car From Away. She did her millennial pass in the entire book, actually, as did my buddy's son, uh, Hartley Vibert, who has his uh, minor in uh, Indigenous Studies from the University of Victoria. He took a look at Vern. So a tip of the hat to those kids uh, who, um, Kaylee said, Dad, you can't say you got a haircut by those barbers that was on par with an angry Apache with a Bowie knife. Can't say that. It's good that you've got. And I said to her, I would not have wanted to get a haircut by an angry Apache. Yes, dad, but you're a student of history. Why don't you read up on what the Texas Rangers did to them? And I did, and I know, and it's true. 
we have to take the time to rewrite the narrative. We have to allow people to rewrite the narrative. Everybody. And uh, there's going to be pushback, but it's the only way you move the dial forward. So uh, anyway, it allowed me to see this pinpoint of hope at the end of the long, dark COVID tunnel. Yeah, well, and it's, I mean, the, the result, it, all of that work was, has fully paid off. I can't wait for the, uh, for this inevitable uh, second book, which, uh, oh, thanks, man. you know, Thank I you. know that will happen. Um, I guess, uh, I, final thing I would love to ask is, is, you know, you've created this incredible, you know, body of work, uh, again, so much is captured within this book, but again, there's so much more to come, but how, how would you like to be remembered? Do you think? Somebody who put his heart into his work and did the best with what he was given in moving forward. Mm. That's all. That's magical. That's a wonderful, wonderful. That's yeah. all, man. I mean, what more can you do? I, I, I knew in Bantam B when I had those buckle skates, I no in Pee Wee when I got those buckle skates, I wasn't making the NHL. <laughs> But that's that's all. It's another thing too, bro. I mean, I got to keep working. Mm. Life's expensive. Yeah, you got to keep putting your shoulder to the mule and plow. Yeah, you got to keep working. It's what keeps you vital and engaged and happy. Yeah. Well, and we're lucky that we absolutely love what we do. And you may not. We love what we do. Yeah. You know how many people do I know now that are saying, you know, oh Jesus. Finally getting my pension. Thank God. So looking forward to what's going to happen. <laughs> Said, Jesus, I'm going to be working until I'm tripping over my own catheter tube on stage. Yeah, that's it. Well, but you made the NHL of comedy. So that counts <laughs> for everything, my friend. Thanks, buddy. Uh, thank Ron, you. Ron James, you're a legend. And I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time today. It, it really is uh, like a, a dream come true to, to be uh, chatting with you in this way. Oh, thank you. Thank you, James. You're a you're a good soul, and I'm I, I'm flattered and humbled by your accolades. I'm oh. uh, uh, I'm just I'm just doing what I'm doing, and anyway, well, thank you so much. It's Thanks, appreciated, man. and good luck with your book too. Oh, thank you very much, mate. Yes. All the best. We'll see you when I get back home sometime. Beautiful. I cannot wait. Okay, Ron. bro. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. To book tickets to see Ron James, go to ronjames.ca. Follow him on Facebook and on Twitter at The Ron James Show and Instagram at Ramblin Ron James. And make sure you order his show-stopping memoir titled All Over the Map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road, published by Doubleday. This has been a Podstarter production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.